You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and yes, I do realize that it's a bit of a lie, the part about uh, getting together every week, because it's been quite a few weeks now. There's been a bit of a pause, but there's been some changes in Firm Up, and, and we're heading in a new direction, or at least slightly different, still fermented foods, but there's a new co-host. Hi, Allison. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm great. So just in case anyone doesn't know, you were on a previous episode. I was. It was sometime in the middle of July. Yep. Um Yeah. Looking here right now. Yeah, July 21st. It was episode 31. So I'll put that in the show notes too. So if anyone wants to go back and get a, a deeper understanding of who you are. But thanks for being a, being a co-host, being the new co-host. No, I'm really excited. It's a great opportunity. Um, I've never done anything like this before, so it's a whole new world to me. And it's, But fermentation is not a new world to you. Right? No, yeah. Fermentation is not a new world to me, but the whole podcast um, speaking about fermentation um, is new to me. <laughs> So what do you ferment in general? Just, uh, I mean, I, well, I'm sure that some of this will rehash a bit of what was in your original interview. Not that we're really doing an interview anymore, but, you know, just kind of introduce just a yourself. getting to know me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dabble in lots of different types of fermentation. I mostly do beer fermentations at home with uh, my husband, but, um, you know, I have, a, I make sourdough bread and um, sauerkraut. I've I've made kimchi before and um that turned out pretty good but I realized I'm not a big kimchi fan in general. Um, you don't like kimchi? I don't. It's just I don't know what it is. I'm I love like that sour taste of sauerkraut, but something about the spiciness on top of the sourness of kimchi just I didn't really like it. Do you like it? I love kimchi. Yeah. Yeah, I I well what kind of kimchi do you make? I mean there's a lot of different kinds. I'm assuming it's probably more the the traditional uh, red kimchi, I think is the term for it. The one that's spicy with garlic and ginger and everything mm -hmm. else. Yeah. That's the one that I made. I just made a, you know, general red kimchi with, I think, I think the recipe I have calls for uh, like extremely hot peppers or red pepper flakes, or maybe it just was too, I, I overdid it, but um, yeah, it was almost, I couldn't even eat it. It was just too spicy for me. So heat, the the actual uh, spice, not necessarily the mixture of spices, but more just the heat of the spice. Yeah, I think it was the heat plus the um, the acid. I mean, that kind of acid itself has a different flavor that is very unique. But adding it to something that's hot, it's that was it, it was kind of hard for me to eat. But I mean, I'll make it again. I'm not opposed to it. Did you have fish sauce in it? I did. I did. Oh, you did. Okay. You even had the, the, the magic ingredient that I just think makes it even better. But I did like the fish sauce and I still have it and I've used it in other types of just general cooking around the house. Um, and I do like that, that flavor. Um, but in something about kimchi, well, what kind of kimchi do you make? I make pretty much the same kind of that you're describing. Okay. Um, that's, that's generally the kind. I haven't spent as much time on kimchi as I've planned to do in the past. Um, I mean, there's entire books with all kinds of recipes and there's some 200 plus different versions of kimchis, hot kimchis, uh, and the, or spicy kimchis and not spicy kimchis, mild ones and quick ferments and fast, uh, long ferments. 
So there's there's plenty of things to choose from, but generally when people are talking about kimchi is is the one that we're talking about, um, yeah. or that we both make regularly at least, or at least I do, and I just I I just I love that uh, the intensity I think is is more what it is for me. Oh yeah, yeah. Not necessarily. I don't always like it super spicy, kind of like what you reacted to. If it's mm-hmm. too hot, which I have done plenty of times, especially if I'm using fresh peppers versus a more controlled. Uh, crushed pepper or or powdered pepper um then sometimes it's a little bit less predictable and then then sometimes it's a little less enjoyable then i just use more rice or more of whatever else that i'm eating it with so hmm. yeah i'm i maybe i should just try it again maybe i just had a bad first experience and yeah. should just tame it down a little bit or find a different recipe and and try that yeah just tame it down a lot i mean give it at yeah. least give it at least another try because the flavors themselves are what's most important i think and and you know i mean uh Spicy heat tolerance is a is a uh, is a, to- a a build up a tolerance to it too. So I know that uh, different points when I've eaten a lot of spicy foods, I'm sure I would have enjoyed a lot spicier kimchi. But mm-hmm. I don't eat quite as many these days, so I, my tolerance has gone way down. So it's not yeah. enjoyable if it's too hot. So yeah, just I mean, cut it down uh, to, uh, like one fourth of what you had, and I'm sure it's got to be at least. So then at least you can figure out if you like the taste of kimchi and then we can figure out if we can actually um, get along and, and do this podcast together because. <laughs> I guess that's the defining factor, kimchi likeness. Yeah. Um, but I heard too, or I've read somewhere that if you make it and it's very spicy, you can, um, I don't want to say water it down, but you can use water to wash some of that off. Oh, that makes sense. I've, I've heard that a lot with uh, sauerkraut. If sauerkraut's too salty, then mm-hmm. just rinse it. Yeah, I think it's kind of in the same realm of thinking. But yeah, so maybe I should have done that too. But I haven't, I mean, kim, I haven't dabbled with kimchi for maybe a year, almost, almost two years. I've mostly just stuck to sauerkraut. It's pretty, it works well for me. I like it on top of my bratwursts. Do you do anything special with your sauerkraut? Not really. I mean, it's just, I just buy my uh, cabbage from the farmer's market and bring it home and uh, just make it that day. Um, Sometimes I add carrots and um, apples or pears or garlic. You know, I kind of experiment in the addition to just the cabbage, but that kind of just depends on what I have available and what is almost about to go quote unquote bad in my refrigerator or on the counter. So, okay. So it does. So it sounds like you really are using the fermentation to a certain extent in that preservation uh, mindset mm-hmm. of making yeah, sure just, things don't go to waste. I just don't like wasting food. I just feel terrible when um, I have to throw something away. I mean, obviously there are points where, you know, that banana looks way too far gone that you can't even use it versus, okay, this is, this is, um, this is okay, but I can't eat it in time. So I'm going to use it in a different way to preserve it and enjoy it later when I have time. So I think that's a good mindset to have. And, and yeah. And then do you ever though, I find sometimes some things that I fermented don't turn out quite right. I mean, maybe that's just because I've over the years have done a lot of different random things or, or been sometimes I start too many at the same time and I lose track of a few. Mm. And so then yeah. some things just don't turn out quite right. Do you ever have that? Or you have you so far in your fermentation experience had most things turn out at least oh, edible wise. Oh no, I've had I've had my mishaps where I've had to dump things down the drain and it's really sad. Um because you do spend a lot of time and a lot of energy. I mean, physical hands-on time is minimal, but you know, you start something and 
three weeks later, you're expecting to have some sort of fermented food or beverage that you're really looking forward to eating or drinking. And then when you drink it or eat it and you're like, oh, this is this is terrible. This is no good. So, yeah, I mean, I've had my flaws. I made some beer for Thanksgiving last year. It was terrible. It was oh, no. like sucking on pennies. It was awful. Um so did that was still, really. Did sick. you still serve it for Thanksgiving or? No, I was yeah. so embarrassed that okay. I that it tasted so bad that um, I think my husband drank a few of them just to appease me and, and to, you know patted me on the back and said it's okay. But no, we just dumped it all down the drain and started all over again. What about you? Yeah, I've, well, I've screwed up a lot of things, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to cheese. I something about anything longer than simple quick cheeses that take a couple weeks. Anytime mm-hmm. when there's aging involved, I have not figured out the trick with that stuff. So I, yeah, that's, that stuff's tricky. That's I, I'm, I have no idea how to, th- any of those people make that types of those types of cheeses. But I think that a, a lot, like I, I would assume from your background in, in beer and wine that involves a lot more, um, <clears throat> sanitary not sanitary i mean sterilized uh equipment or different paying a little bit more attention to the environment i think is a lot more important with cheese say as opposed to vegetables and come having come from uh, starting out my fermentation with yogurts and and um vegetables not that i'm dirty when i'm making these things but i'm not necessarily um sanitizing uh sterilizing my equipment always in the same way that I probably should be to a lot larger extent with the cheese. And I think that's what I'm finding is more so it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to be aging things for a, a decent amount of time, I should probably um, be, or any milk products for a long period of time, I should probably mm-hmm. be paying even closer attention to the things that I'm kind of lax about. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's really important too, is sanitation and cleanliness. Um, I mean, I am me clean. Pers- I, I swear I'm not, I'm not like... <laughs> picking my nose while I'm making these things. But uh, yeah, at the same time, it's yes, it's definitely important. Yeah. And it's well, it's like different types of sanitation affect fermentation differently. So I mean, you're probably experiencing some of that too. But yeah, the longer stuff that you keep for like those aged aged cheeses, I think a lot of people who do make artisanal cheeses have a special not I don't want to say a special room, but a special cleanly place that they probably keep track of all the time and are constantly cleaning or um, looking into it. So I I personally don't have something like that at my house. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I just need to build a commercial kitchen space in my basement and and start experimenting that way. I don't know. I mean, my my house used to be a uh, cheese factory back in the uh, early 1900s. Oh, really? That, That's really interesting. So I, I figure, you know, it's, I, I feel like I should be able to make some some cheeses here, but Sounds eventually. like you might be able to make some like native fermented cheeses. There's probably a whole bunch of yeast and bacteria floating in your air. I wonder how long they last for. Um, I, I would I would assume a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's constant. I mean, you're you're in there living and there's just bacteria that floats up into the air and yeast. Um. So I would think I would assume that you'd probably have at least some type of salvageable yeast or bacteria to make cheese. Be interesting to find out. Maybe I can try and catch them. And, yeah. Uh, and hey, yeah, could be go back to the early 1900s and and, yeah. uh, and try it. I mean, 
it, it worked for them. But uh, but thinking about um, microbes and whatnot, I, if if you want to kind of jump in on our, our topic, we could go right into that. Yeah, um, I think this is a good time to start talking about that. Food Microbiology 101. Kind of like that? Yep. All right. Food Micro 101. And now you have a little bit more background in this than I do. Mine's more from just reading and some experience, but you have much more of a background. What's your background? Could you just remind Yeah, me, my so? my background is in food science. Um and uh then once I graduated with my bachelor's, I went on to get a master's degree in fermentation science, where I specialized in um, yeast and bacteria for making wine. Um, but just fermentation in general, it's pretty, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's basic, but, um, you know, I, I have spent many, many hours in the library reading books about fermentation and bacteria and yeast and molds and all, all those types of things. And do you find it exciting? Oh, I do. I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, some people don't really find it as interesting as me, but I, I really enjoy the subject. What about you? You you obviously like the subject. You have this podcast and you make fermented foods at home. Yeah, and I think that for me, it's I, I like the the idea of doing a topic on on uh, an intro to food microbiology just because it's something that does fascinate me. It's a large part of what's gotten me into doing these kind of um, uh, ferments or, or continuing to do them, I guess, not, not when I first started, but it's one of those things where especially some different chefs throughout the world that are focusing on microbes and how they can introduce new flavors uh, and uh, things that maybe people haven't tried or haven't tried in different ways. I mean, there's the traditional side of fermentation, which cannot be forgotten and, and largely influences any future discoveries or, or creations. But to this, there is the more things are understood, or at least the more that they can be examined uh, through uh, experimenting and then making sure that they're still uh, safe and edible. Um, I just feel like there's so many different, uh, different new ways to look at, at fermentation as well. And I think a lot of those new things require a little bit more understanding about the microbiology, what's actually going on there. And whereas a lot of the traditional ferments, you don't necessarily need to know. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think for myself, I'm just excited about this kind of stuff because it really is very interesting just in, in the general sense of understanding that there is so much going on the microbial level that is easy to forget. And then it's easy for me to remember that that's always going on as I'm enjoying my uh, fermented foods and realizing that they would not be there or, well, there's many, I probably wouldn't be here if there weren't all these microbes doing all these things either. So. Right. Well, and that's a good point that you brought up bringing uh, chefs um, and other food scientists too, um, not necessarily chefs who are trying to use fermentation to develop new flavors. Cause that's where a lot of research right now is going to, but um, yeah, I I like that you brought that up because I always I always forget about that. Just from a fermentation scientist standpoint, my thought is mostly okay. I I want this to ferment and I want it to quote unquote be completed as in there's no available sugar left. Um, and the, I mostly think of it as like not an industrial standpoint, but um, you know I want it to taste good too. But I'm just more concerned of like the bio culture that's growing and making sure that it's sustainable. But I always forget that 
other people are experimenting to get new flavors. Now, when you're paying attention to these kind of things or, or, or when you're just fermenting in general, do you, do you focus on, um, everything that's going on on the microbial level or is it, is it a little bit more casual when you're fermenting it at home? When I first started fermenting stuff at home, I was just, um, constantly thinking about what was growing in the, um, the, um, the population of the cultures itself. But now as I've gotten more comfortable with fermenting at home, um, I don't necessarily think too much of it. I realize that um, temperature is important. Um, so if it's really cold in my house, I realize that maybe it's going to take a few more days for, say, sauerkraut to get going um, and to see those bubbles in the sauerkraut. Same with like sourdough bread. Um, you know, a lot of environmental factors affect fermentation. Um, so no, I don't really, now I don't really think much of it. I know eventually it, it will get there. It will get back. It will, you'll, it will. you'll start to focus on it more again. You're saying, um, as in if I were to be fermenting sauerkraut and say it's cold outside, so it's cold in my house. Um, oh, you're saying the ferment will get there eventually. Yeah. The ferment know. will eventually, uh, quote, what people say finish, um, It'll eventually finish. And now I don't focus so much on what's happening at the microbial level as much as, okay, I just want this to finish so I can enjoy it. But I'd say that's probably where a lot of people are in their Mm -hmm. their fermentation at home is especially if they don't have any uh, background or experience with microbiology is they're generally not thinking about these kind of things is now for someone that doesn't come from that kind of background and, and just doesn't have like a just a weird interest in these kind of things. Is there anything that a person can benefit from, do you think, from from knowing more about, or at least an intro, like kind of what we're going over or going to be going over with uh, this intro to microbiology? Do you think that there there is an importance or, or something that people will be helped by knowing a little bit more? Oh, yeah. I think um, any kind of enthusiast fermenter um would definitely benefit from knowing what's going on in their fermentation. I think that then they can troubleshoot. If something isn't going right, um, they can put their minds at ease um, by having some sort of idea of what type of bacteria or yeast um, or mold or whatever it is in your ferment. To It's really just a troubleshooting tool. I think it, ju- it would just help you do, you know, figure out if there's any sort of problem. Yeah, to be able to kind of approach the variables differently and be able to look at at the mm-hmm. different aspects. And I can see why, like, so someone that's just starting out, that may not be, that might be a little overwhelming to know all the different variables that could be affecting the flavor and outcome of the final product. But the more someone becomes comfortable with it, I think, yeah, definitely jump in, learn a little bit yeah. more. And then I think you can, once you understand the concept and um, you understand what is happening during the fermentation, that's when you can experiment and do different do different things maybe um add more sugar or um add you know d- different types of fruits or vegetables and see if it, maybe the flavors change so i think once you understand the concept of it and you understand what is going on during a fermentation then that's when the creativeness can start yeah and I, well and i think that throughout history people have been doing this even before they knew anything about the microbes that were doing it i mean mm-hmm. it's just like as soon as they found something that worked then they could either continue doing that or or slightly alter it and just uh trial and error if you don't have a troubleshooting guide um can do it that way but mm-hmm. i i i also think that microbiology can be important in the sense of people that are hesitant about 
fermenting at home. That, like food safety? Yeah, I mean, that's. I think a lot of people, if they think my food microbiology, they think about the food safety and, and, and food spoilage and contamination because that's a large part of the, the industry and uh, side of it, I'm, I'm assuming, for food microbiology. When mm-hmm. when you were approaching food microbiology, did it was was there a large focus on food safety? Uh, yeah, there's a huge focus on food safety. I mean, when I was in school and taking a food, my food microbiology class, I'd say eighty percent of it was on food safety and how to control. Mo- mostly, it's just how to control um, uh, microorganisms from grow- growing because sometimes. Some some types of bacteria are good and some are bad. Um, so it's more of controlling the actual food product and what your uh, ultimate goal is for w- that food product. But I'd say 80% is on food safety. Um, and the other 20% is just information about, you know, was how to ferment stuff and different new techniques of preserving food um, that can be talked about at a much later date, but it's, it was really interesting. Um, now, would you say, like, I think for some people that would kind of seem, oh, if there's 80% is on um, food safety, then it must be dangerous to ferment at home, which I, I really feel is for many ferments, much less so the case, especially vegetables. Um, it, while there are things that can make it better or make it different or, or change the final product, it is a lot harder to fully screw up and make something that is um, contaminated beyond um, edibility. I mean, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. it's kind of a controlled spoilage having though. Now having had your background and your bias, do you feel differently? Do you feel like it is dangerous to, to ferment in a person's home or? No, I, I don't think it's dangerous at all. Um, well, because I think the biggest thing um, that pe- some people may not even realize is um and maybe they do, um, is that pH is extremely important when it comes to um, yeast and bacterial growth. And um, I think the the magic number, if I remember correctly, it's if a pH is below 4.2, um, which means it's more on the acidic side, um, you won't get pathogenic bacteria growing. So you, you're in the clear, nothing's going to grow. Um, when it comes to like salmonella and E. coli and, um, Clostridium botulinum and stuff like that. So you don't have to worry about that in fermented foods because pretty much all fermented foods are below that pH. And what, and, and the, like, so you have the, the bacteria still in there, as far as I understand, you, even once you get to that pH, there are, are there still active, uh, lactic acid bacteria, um, at that stage or have they pretty much moved on and, and are there other bacteria that are then predominant at the, the pH of 4.2? At that at 4.2 or below, it's mostly lactic acid bacteria um, just because that those types of bacteria by nature produce a lot of lactic acid, which decreases the pH of your milk or of your sauerkraut. Um and that's how they survive. It's a coping mechanism or survival mechanism that they have developed through hundreds, thousands, millions of years. Um, and so that's why fermented food is so safe and why people a long time ago and, you know, even before they knew what was happening, they would have this fermented food and survive. 
And I, I, what, what you mentioned there with, with it's a survival mechanism for uh, the lactic acid bacteria and, and, and a survival aspect for us with the fermented foods, but it's, it, that's something that I think is, is very fascinating and, and something easy to, to forget is that, you know, lactic acid bacteria are using this food substrate as a form of food, uh, mm-hmm. or they're metabolizing it of, of sorts. I don't know technically if you can call it food for them, but it's, it's metabolizing the sugars or, um, the I'd nutrients say it's eating it's eating, it's eating. the food okay. it's, it's, it's eating the sugar or whatever more friendly more personal uh, yeah yeah so the, so these bacteria are are consuming their eating and then they're protecting themselves from other bacteria that want to do them harm and some of those bacteria aren't necessarily harmful to us but they're harmful to the lactic acid bacteria um and but it, it does seem like there is a lot of i don't know if it's where would you say it is? I, I, I guess I haven't done a lot of looking into this about the coevolution of lactic acid bacteria in, in humans and maybe other mammals or other animals in general. It just seems that we kind of go together really well um, and uh, coexist as as different yeah, creatures. Yeah, you know, I don't really know that much about that, um, to be honest. I just know that there is this symbiotic relationship between lactic acid bacteria and humans. We have lactic acid bacteria in our, in our colons and in our intestines, but we also have E. coli. It's a different kind of E. coli than what the one people associate with, with being harmful. Um, But it's, it's funny how we benefit a lot from, uh, you know, lactic acid bacteria. Then there's that whole statement of probiotics um, and how probiotics are healthy for you. And that's mostly lactic acid bacteria. So, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I, I've never really thought much of it. It's a good point. I, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it interesting. I mean, these kind of things are just very fascinating because it, it's it, at this microscopic level, it's, there's a lot going on. I mean, it's like a constant... Um, war and survival of sorts and and it's it's easy to forget just because they make such uh enjoyable foods um but it's it's tough to be bacteria but it seems like for the kind of things that we like to eat it's a lot easier for lactic acid bacteria they kind of have it made it's kind of their their place um yeah yeah i think that they have dominated and um they've they themselves as a genus species has figured out how to survive um and what they can do uh you know through evolution to be to be able to keep you know reproducing and surviving and they make delicious food for us to eat so yeah well looking a a little bit i actually have a a question kind of because it comes up a lot um in regard to lactic acid bacteria because again reading anything about fermented foods in any textbooks a lot of it is focused on lactic acid bacteria and homo-fermentative or hetero-fermentative. I kind of have an idea of what those, those, those mean, um, but it, it's that there are those two different versions. And is that something that, that you easily could? I mean, uh, like I understand it, it's about the way that they convert the sugars. But it also seems to be a very big classifier for, I mean, they're all like lactic acid bacteria are gram negative and I don't know if that's, or gram positive, but um, I don't know if that's, like there's a lot of keywords that come up in microbiology. Are any of those important to understand or 
or get a grasp on? Or is it kind of stuff that can easily go over someone's head and not much of a worry? I mean, you don't have to think too much of homo fermentation versus hetero fermentation. Um, but there is a difference between the two of them. Um, I, I'm trying to find um, a really good definition of it, but I can't seem to think of one. But it's mostly just the difference in how they, the bacteria themselves, um, go through their metabolic process to take sugar and to, to create um, energy for them to use to survive. Um, uh, hetero fermented bacteria, I think they produce um, a little bit of alcohol um, and carbon dioxide, whereas homo fermented only make carbon dioxide. I, I believe that's the difference between the two of them. Um, but it's one of those things that in a way you don't really have to know too much about them. Okay. Um, this, and that's, kind of, I guess, what I was kind of curious about because it's like I've never been able to fully wrap my head around that. And I've looked at definitions. I've I've tried to 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 understand more of what – because some of the things that I try to read are definitely – I don't have the background for. And so sometimes it's a lot of, of looking stuff up while I'm trying to read it. But it's 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 fascinating for those little morsels of information that I can get. But most of it's pretty dry and, 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 and has a lot of uh, buzzwords or, or scientific words, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's more of just, um, it's just a way for uh, microbiologists to classify different types of bacteria to be more specific. Um, here, I just found my homo, ferment, homo fermentative and hetero fermentative um, information. So homo fermentation um, is when you start, a bacteria starts with glucose, which is just six carbon sugar. Um, and they can convert it um, for basically they're just converting this sugar to be able to survive same way we eat food you know we eat food to survive and drink water to survive um so they eat this sugar and then the last thing that comes out of them that they can't use anymore um is lactic acid so homo fermentative bacteria only produce lactic acid okay um whereas hetero fermentative bacteria they eat sugar, do the whole thing, um, and they produce lactic acid and ethanol and sometimes carbon dioxide. Okay. So then in – so the – okay. So it's it really is the difference of the acidic acid and ethanol are, are the main main differences is that it's, it's creating um, – like acidic acid is uh, say like the the acid of, of vinegar, right? Is that correct or is that not? Um, or am I no, off? it's more of like um, when you have uh, sour milk, it's more of that type okay. of acid. Um, vinegar is um, acetic acid. Ac- okay, so is, yeah, there's a difference. A little difference, yeah, it's Ac- a little different. What was it? Is acidic and acetic? There's a lactic acid, yeah, and then acetic acid. Oh, see, and acetic is the one acetic. that's the mm-hmm. for for vinegars. So, so you have that that th- those, but they're all a part of. Uh, now, would you say that there the, that there's multiple? Because I think there's both homo fermentative and hetero fermentative in say sauerkraut. Um, and I guess the reason why that comes up in things that I've looked at is that there's different stages of fermentation. Um, again, this whole like war of things going on. 
and uh, or not war necessarily. I mean, sometimes it, maybe they're they're giving up their reins um, yeah, peacefully, but um, <laughs> but either way, there's something going on. There's a there's a passing off of the the largest community of of bacteria in that in that space, and sometimes it happens pretty quick. But like with sauerkraut, like there's the different stages over days or hours sometimes where you know sometimes it's a um, more of a homo fermentative bacteria, sometimes that more heterofermentative uh, lactic acid bacteria, and then some other bacteria involved in there as well. And um, Yeah, I think during a fermentation, you can definitely have two different species of bacteria growing. Um, but then I think, uh, you know, towards the end of fermentation, you pretty much have one species that dominates. Um, you know, it's one species might have been in a higher population at the beginning of the fermentation versus a different species. Um, and it is one of those survival things where, I, again, not saying they're at war with each other or however you want to describe it, but, um, you know, one outcompetes the other when it comes to population growth. Um, well, but you can definitely have both of them at the same time. Well, and sometimes it's fascinating how they're they're not only outcompeting competing each other, but they themselves create an environment which they no longer can survive in. Um, isn't yeah, that kind of what right. happens with uh, like jumping over to, to to yeast? Isn't that I mean they'll consume sugars and um, and make an environment that is inhospitable to them, or do they just run out of food? Well, that's a, I mean that to me is really interesting, but it's a, it's the um, combination of those two factors. They consume all of the sugar that they can use to make ethanol. Um, but it's also one of those things too, like they produce so much ethanol that that in itself kills them. So yeah, you can have that too. And I think that's really interesting. Um, but a lot of, when it comes to like lactic acid bacteria, I, uh, you can probably, they probably make enough lactic acid that would inhibit them from growing or, you know, kill them. I I think I have read about some lactic acid bacteria that are, are just like there's some that can live in even higher higher numbers, kind of like there's bacteria all over the world that some like some places there's only bacteria where nothing else can live, um, mm -hmm. either the, it's too hot, too too cold, or different things like that. So right, it it's very interesting all the stuff that is going on and and thinking about um, about the bacteria and I know we're kind of just jumping all around, but for me this this is what really fascinates me is is getting that that deeper look. Um, or at least a, a somewhat deeper look, because I mean, wh where would you say the understanding is? I'm, I'm sure it continues to grow as to how much people understand about things. But at the same time, I'm sure there's a lot that we still don't understand about these uh, crazy little critters. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I mean, in the 1800s, they weren't even sure what was making beer or why that was where, where this fermentation was coming from. So I think we've come a long way since then. Um but uh, and there's lots of research that's still going on, because if you were to like look at the biochemical pathway of how lactic acid take in this uh, glucose, the sugar, and then um, all of the steps that are used chemically to convert it into other sugars or to fatty acids um, or to um, like proteins and that sort of thing, how they can use all of that inside of their cells to make um, different types of flavor compounds um, or to make cell walls or, um, you know, what, I mean, it seems like sky's the limit. That's what a lot of research, especially in California and um, 
Southern California, they're doing a lot of uh, biotech research to do that, to harness lots of different byproducts that aren't necessarily common to us um, to make different types of um, pharmaceuticals. Or I know to make uh, like biofuels, um, one part, I believe one part of making um you know, fuel, it requires a precursor that's used to make plastic and certain types of bacteria make this precursor by just naturally. So it's harnessing and figuring out all of these different pathways and how they can make them make the the bacteria make more of that compound. I think that is really fascinating. And so going back to what you were talking about before, like a lot of research is also being, or that there is on the, at least on the commercial side of, of food production, that idea of coming up with uh, different compounds that these bacteria are able to, or, or other microbes are able to create in order to come up with new flavors or um, different aspects. Um, is, is So you're saying that that is a part of research as well. Um, and if, if so, is it more, I guess, to a certain extent, that seems really interesting. I could also see people sometimes coming at and being fearful of, okay, well, what are they, you know, are they creating things or are they just discovering things or how does that work? Kind of like the, the whole thing. There was an episode we did on, on, um, MSG at one point, I mean, looking at bacteria creating a compound and where do you think the, do you think there is a balance? Do you think there's, there is any reason to be fearful of what these bacteria may create for us? Um, flavor wise, health wise. No, do I don't have much think of that, opinion. I mean, um, I mean, I mean, I guess from a science standpoint, I think that it's great that people can um, have people of you know they they've um, identified and mapped all like the yeast genome and stuff, and they can use that information to figure out new compounds that they can um, use uh, and manipulate to make more compounds or flavorful compounds or something like that, like the whole MSG thing. Um, but you know, I don't know personally how I feel about that. It kind of draws that line of nature versus science. (laughs) And that's kind of one of those gray areas that it's, it's kind of hard. Like, yes, that's great that we can do it, but do I really want to eat that? Or it's one of those things. How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's kind of tough. I, 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 for one, get really, you know, I mean, I think food, technology, anything, I get excited about the possibility of learning something new or discovering something different or any of the possibilities that these kind of, that, that science and, and research can bring about. At the same time, yeah, it is kind of one of those things where it's kind of really hard to know. And I guess we'll all just kind of be the, the guinea pigs to a certain extent um, if if I'm if I'm going to imbibe and and give it a try but yeah and there's certain things too that i understand like um i i'm not opposed to say eating msg just because people have been eating it for not a long time but people we know the effects of it and there's really no harm that we as of now um and so it's just i guess it's one of those things like later in life where how do we see this affecting our bodies? Is it going to be a positive thing? Is it not going to change anything? Or is it going to be a negative thing that happens to us? So it's it's just really interesting how um, this new, it's not a new technology, but how they're using um, 
byproducts that were not really necess- not known of um, through fermentation to make and create um, other things. Some things are good, like they're going to use, uh, they're starting to use bacteria to make biofuel, See, I which mean, is I, good for the environment. So Maybe it's just one of those things with great power comes great responsibility and, and yes. being able to pay attention <laughs> to those things. I don't, maybe, yeah. uh, uh, is there any, I guess, microbiology? I mean, what else, what would be something basic that people, is there anything else you can think of that would be good for people to, to know? Let's interesting. see. Fascinating. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, there's just so much to talk about. Um, it's hard to, it's really just hard to focus on like one little topic when it comes to microbiology 101. Um, I mean, my interest is mostly in yeast. Um, yeah, I, which we really haven't talked about. I mean, what, yeah, what, what, really what interests about you about yeast? yeast? Is it the, is it the product that they create? It's mostly the products they create. I okay. think it's just really awesome that you can take um, you know, things that normally would not ferment on their own, like grains, um, and you heat them up, um, and you know, the enzymes that are in the grains, um, create sugars that the yeast can consume and make, um, alcohol as mostly that's their, their main byproduct. Um, but so yeah, that's where most of my interest is. Um, but let's see. Um, yeah, yeast, they have, I don't know, like 6,000 genes or something, which is pretty amazing. And um, I, they, I think the other thing that I think was really interesting about yeast is a lot of people get them, they fall in the same category as molds. Um, they're both fungus, but it's just funny how different the two of those two things are from each other. That I think that interests me too. Do you know a lot about the difference between yeasts and molds? Not on a, uh, not on, on the basis of what the actual difference, what, what are the differences, I guess? Um, yeast are single-celled um, organisms, um, whereas molds are multicellular. And um, the yeast that we're used to when it comes to like making beer and bread and um, wine, those um, bud. Um, they'd go through an asexual splitting process where they create um, an identical one of themselves just by budding. Whereas molds, um, they can be asexual, but they can also be um, sexual where they create the molds that grow on your bread or your cheese and stuff that are really fuzzy. Those are the ones that have spores that um, kind of get float into the air. And that's how they reproduce. But yeast don't do that at all, you're saying? But yeast don't do that. Yeah. The yeast that we're used to don't do that, which is really interesting. It's just through selective, um, uh, us selecting yeast. Um, and I guess like backsloshing, taking something from one fermentation and using it to start another fermentation, just doing that, they've genetically developed this budding technique instead of, um, reproducing, um, the same way that molds would in nature. So let me make sure I'm understanding that correctly. So this is this isn't what yeast are doing necessarily naturally. This is what's being done in the laboratory in order to be able to. Are you talking about isolate strains of yeast or uh, like uh, hybridize them and make them into different? Oh, sorry. Like, no, this is this is more of like what um, you know people have done through generations and generations of say brewing beer. Um, 
that yeast naturally, like a long time ago, they would they they would spore um, the same way molds would, and now they don't do that. So you, oh, so, so it's because of because, uh-huh, the human yeah, interaction. Sorry. Yeah. And so, are there still yeasts that are like molds, or have they uh, have have those kind of yeasts really disappeared? I think you can- find those in nature um, okay. but in like the food industry that's not very they're i don't think they exist now so, what yeah. about so say for a uh, wild sourdough starter would are those yeasts still going to be the the kind that don't spore that don't that are asexual if right I can just the mix ones, things up? yeah the ones that i mean i think when i'm talking about the the yeast that spore are um like the ones in the woods like far 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 away Okay. Not the not the yeast that gr- are you know growing in your kitchen or let's, your house. Um, those I think, or and, and and if there are any that do spore, um, I don't think that it's the right type of. Again, going back to environment, it's not the right type of environment for them to uh, grow. Um, you know, bacteria and yeast and able to do anything, same as humans, um, need to be in the right type of conditions to prosper. Um, you know, if say you put a yeast in a very cold environment, it's going to be very slow. It's not going to be, um, at good at starting a fermentation as say, if you're in nice, hot, sunny weather, same as people. That's kind of how so, I think so of it. So yeast are more like people in the sense of? Yeast are, yeah, they're kind of like people. Same with like bacteria. I, I guess when I think of um, microorganisms, I kind of relate to them in that light of, you know, if you, you know, people people do live in Arizona or um, in Canada where, you know, they have extremes in temperature saying it's really cold versus really hot. Um and they they themselves have adapted to that, but say take me who um, is used to having like a very temperate climate um, and put me in Arizona in the middle of summer. I'm not going to do so well personally. Um, same as up in Canada when it's cold in the middle of winter. Like it's just going to take me a while to get going and to acclimate to that environment. In the same way with bacteria and yeast. And then I think with bacteria and yeast, the thing is that like you're saying, it's going to take them. They're going to be slower. They're not going to to react as fast to things. And so in that sense too, if it's not the proper environment for them, they're not necessarily going to be the, um, the one that, that wins or, or out competes if they're moving slower than they normally would, if they're not in their proper environment, then something else is more likely that that is their environment. They, they are accustomed to it. They're more likely to, to out compete. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in the other sense too, like sometimes you can have uh, yeast or bacteria that grow too fast. Um, and for, for the final product of what? For the final. We... Yeah. Yeah. For the final product. And, um, you know, they may, they'll outcompete everything else, but then you have to think about if they grow too fast, um, you know, that, the, that is, is stressful or both of those are stressful things. If they grow too slow or they grow too fast. Stress. Um, are you talking about for the person that's preparing this or for the yeast themselves? It's for, stressful. For both, I guess. Okay. <laughs> for both sure. the person and then the, uh, the microorganisms themselves. Um, it's stre- from the microbial standpoint, it's stressful for them to be too fast or too slow because, um, they can create, um, off flavors, um, you, usually they're off flavors, but sometimes they might be good. Um, it gives it a different type of character, I guess. But um, that is, 
interesting in itself how you can manipulate temperature and um to um affect the final taste of your fermentation so you're saying that a stressed out yeast or bacteria may impart usually off flavors but they could impart something good so if it, it, it's it it really does that's where microbiology can come become very helpful it sounds like with with fine tuning things to really get down to i mean because a little bit of stress or a little bit of off flavor probably isn't going to be noticeable to the person just starting out fermenting but someone that's trying to really nail down a recipe or or, or come up with something new that's when these fine tuning things come become much more important i'm assuming yeah yeah and um i mean earlier when I mentioned how I made terrible beer last year for Thanksgiving, the reason why it tasted so awful was because it was way too hot in my house. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the yeast fermented too fast um, and they created stress stressors, um, stress from the heat. Um, It's, Are these enzymes or? or No, they're like actual chemicals. Um, When yeast get really stressed out, they produce a lot of sulfur um and that's like uh that rotten egg smell or if you have mushrooms that have been in that have gone bad that like that smell um they make that uh naturally when they get stressed out um because their metabolic pathways are going too fast and they run out of sugar or fats and it you know everything's kind of out of whack um so that's what happened in my fermentation it was too hot and the yeast produced all of this sulfur, which ended up tasting like copper pennies, which is funny, even though it's not sulfur. Um, in my mind, that's what they tasted like. It, to me, maybe if you tasted it, it could have tasted like rotten eggs. I, but that's what I, they well, produced. Have you tried a lot of rusty pennies? You know, I, you, there's like a specific smell and I just associate okay, that right. smell. Sure. You know, if you take like a bunch of pennies or you have pennies in your hand yeah. and then you smell your hands if you haven't washed them like that. I've never sucked on a penny, but that's the okay. smell no, I, 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 that's okay, taste now I get. Now I've got that taste I've, and I cannot <laughs> imagine that being in beer. So yeah, no, it's just not that good. So then the, the, the rule is just don't stress out your yeast and bacteria. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah, and that's why controlled fermentations are pretty important. And that's what makes them safe too and why I wouldn't have any problem trying uh, your cheeses or kimchi or your ferments versus something that I make just because um, I'm sure that you control your fermentation. And then once you figure out, you know, maybe I can increase the temperature a little bit or add this to decrease the pH a little more to create some of those you know, minor flavorful things, um, minor, I don't want to say off flavors, but something that would be beneficial. How how fine tuned do you think a person can get? I mean, do you think that there, there is a range say as, as people that get acclimated to certain temperatures, they're still used to a range of daytime and nighttime, um, highs and lows temperature wise. And mm-hmm. with uh, with a lot of bacteria and yeast, it's it's a range. It's like a lot of times there's or, or even just a simple looking at um, countertop yogurts, mesophilic yogurts that are going to be relatively room temperature is going to be the the climate that works best for them. But there's still a range in there. But is it possible or even important or, or usable to then fine tune that even more down to you know if a person has a controlled box. Like a like a heating box that I'll sometimes use for um, 
especially for thermophilic yogurts. Um, but then just, I could also use that and bring it down in temperature for mesophilic yogurts and give them a one degree, uh, or half a, half a degree Fahrenheit difference Would that kind of thing. Really, if I could fine tune it and experiment with it, do you think that make much of a difference or is it pretty much, is it a wider window? Um, I mean, it, I guess when it comes to just temperature in general, that's, it might, it's kind of like a wider window, but, um, you can still, fi- you can still fine tune it and then experiment and see how hot you can get your mesophilic yogurt bacteria to grow. Um, maybe, maybe you are pressed for time and you need to have, you need to have it done a few days early. Maybe that would be the benefit of experimenting with temperature that way. Um, same with, uh, thermophilic yogurt bacteria. If you have all the time in the world, you could maybe lower the temperature and just make the fermentation last longer. And maybe that in effect would create some interesting flavor components versus fermenting it at its normal temperature, um, for the recommended period of time. So I think there's just a lot of things that people can do to experiment to see if they can develop all of these different flavors and textures and things like that. There's no excuse for ever getting bored with uh, ferments. I, I think yeah. if a person wants to experiment, there's endless, especially if a person's after taste. Yeah, I mean, there's there's endless possibilities of chasing certain tastes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would totally be worth it. I mean, I... I've, I experiment sometimes with different areas in my kitchen when I'm making sauerkraut, you know, is this spot that's next to that's in direct sunlight most of the day is that going to make better tasting sauerkraut in my mind than if I put it, um, you know, by the washer dryer or on top of the refrigerator. I mean, I don't have the luxury or I don't, I, I don't have the luxury of having a, um, a heating box or anything like that in my house right now. So I just kind of experiment that way and see if if I do taste a difference. So with your beers, you're not even using a controlled environment. It, it is still controlled in the sense of choosing where in your place you're putting it. But do you – because I know some home beer makers have pretty elaborate setups for controlling temperatures more in the, the cooler side of things or different stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Is that stuff that you, you do or you, you go a little bit more natural and just put it in a sp- certain spot? It's it's more of just natural fermentation. I mean, I do inoculate it with um my my beer with um a specific strain of yeast, and then I just usually let it go and see if it happens. I do keep track of of the weather if it's supposed to be hot or cold, and manage the temperature of the inside of my house that way too when I'm doing a fermentation. But um, I don't have any sort of sophisticated equipment. Um, and, and it'd be some, the, it's like on my wish list. I would love to have all of that sophisticated equipment, but I, I don't. <laughs> yeah. It seems that, uh, fermentation is one of those things that's, uh, well, not so much on beer and wine. When I, whenever I've looked at that kind of stuff, it's, it's very easy to spend a lot of money, but in general for a lot yeah. of other things, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, just the, the raw product and some kind of vessel. And maybe sometime mm-hmm. we can get into uh, looking at the microbiology side of things and, and trying to differentiate, uh, because one question that I, I do have for a future episode is in regard to, um, having a completely anaerobic environment versus a relatively anaerobic environment, um, as in like using airlocks versus uh, not using an airlock, because there's a lot of different versions and ways of fermenting in different vessels for vegetables specifically. That um, there's definitely some heated debate in different directions as to what's important, what's not important uh, when it comes to that uh, for the final product. And 
and and maybe there's more to it than just going by taste but yeah i I think that would be a really interesting conversation to have um because i i there's i mean fermentation is such a broad topic to begin with anyway that you know we could talk about microbiology every single episode in detail and still not cover everything um and and there are podcasts that do that that spend all they do is talk about um microbiology but um yeah i think i think that's an interesting topic as well did you have anything else you wanted to that that you thought would be would be good to throw in before we we wrap up for the for today's episode no i think i mean we pretty much covered it yeast molds bacteria do you have anything else that you wanted to add i can't really think of a, a, a whole lot else i mean i think that we kind of it's call it maybe more of a uh, a mix-up of uh, Micro 101, um, just kind of all over the place. But people yeah. get a little taste of different things. It's, you know, if if you want an actual 101, I mean, there's plenty of good textbooks out there that will... Describe with... it in more detail. And... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. yeah. But, uh, and this is something we can always go back to as well. I mean, it's... Yeah, I think... Uh... There's, so, there's so much... To, I guess it's more of just like, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to just microbiology and the what is happening in the actual fermentation environment and how things are changing throughout the fermentation i mean that would be um a whole other podcast in itself just from beginning to end how things are changing themselves so in the so it sounds like we've got plenty of future podcasts and and maybe just in general with the uh, any any time that we're doing a podcast that's specific to a specific uh, kind of ferment, we can go into a little bit more of the microbiology. I've tried to do that before, but now that you know, so you're here and 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 you've you've studied this, then it will be uh, it'll be exciting to get uh, a new perspective on all these specific ferments and yeah. how, how microbiology affects that. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. So, any other? Should we just should we wrap up for today? Yeah, I don't really have much else to talk about um you had sent me a link to the um what is it called the microbes after after hours oh yeah did you, you want going, to talk about that are you going to uh watch that do you think yeah i'm gonna watch it's on my it's on my calendar i'm gonna watch it tonight now we are we are pre-recording this so it will be um it, it will have already happened for people that uh are, are listening to this podcast but it's something that they i'll put a link in the show notes for uh where to go watch that after the fact um, and, uh, because that's, I, I'm interested to see what kind of information it goes into and I'll be interested to hear maybe next episode, we can talk about it a little bit too, about your, uh, what, what was interesting if there was anything new. Yeah. Well, and it correlates well with what we're talking or what we just talked about because it's, um, I mean, it's specifically the microbiology of beer, but, um, I think that. Would they'll? I hope that they cover a lot of things that we talked about, or even bring to light some things that we didn't even know about. I'm excited. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, I'm excited. We'll uh, we'll follow up on that one on next time or or sometime soon. And if, like I mentioned, the 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 show notes people can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 35 for episode 35. And you can also find any other contact information for FirmUp on firmup.com or Twitter at FirmUp or Facebook at FirmUp or anywhere else that you uh, would like to interact with us. Uh, we'd love to hear 
your input and we've kind of talked about a few different possible episodes but at the same time you know we're we've got a whole new season of, of things new co-hosts and so if you have suggestions send them our way as well or questions any questions or or corrections if, if i said something wrong let us know that too but thanks again and uh, until next time firm up